We think about that marvelous love of our Savior is the impetus for our commitment to Him. You know, today as we are in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23, really that word kind of rings true in my ear, commitment, commitment, even a commitment unto death, unto Jesus Christ. You know, I've been reading through a book, walking through a book, it's actually I've been kind of doing the cheater's way, but I, I do read books as well, but uh, I've been listening to an audio book about uh, history of special forces in our, our armed services, and it's, it's really an interesting uh, read. And it's just a reminder of even the special forces being illustrative of our entire military community of the commitment and the sacrifice that they make, especially those that are actively in harm's way. And a sense of duty, a sense of honor, commitment. And then, depending upon the, uh, depending upon the mission, no matter the mission, really, just a sense of, uh, of commitment and call to what they're called to do. And I think in the same way, we are called, in a, in a much similar way, we are called as Christians to, to commit ourselves. Uh, quite different in the application, undoubtedly, most of the time, at least here in America, we're not putting ourselves actively in harm's way as a believer, although some of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even at this very moment, in different places in the world, they're actively taking their life into their own hands by standing up for Christ. But yet, there's a call to die. Willingness, no matter what our situation is, a commitment to, to, to Christ. And so we're going to see a commitment to, to deny self and also die to self. That's going to be our couple of points that we'll see today. But we think about that commitment unto Christ because of his commitment unto us. So we see here in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23, it says this. It says this, and he said to all, to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or many of our translations say his soul. Lord God, as we think about this passage today, as we come to this passage and look at it, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to re-examine those of us who are committed to Christ, who have given our lives to Jesus Christ. We'd re-examine the true nature of that commitment to which we have been called, which we have committed ourselves to. For those of us who do not know Christ as their Savior, those sitting here today, may they follow even the example of this young man, Zebediah Harkis, who has given his life to Jesus Christ committed his life to following Jesus and is now growing in him. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, there is no greater love that one could exhibit than he would lay down his life for his friend, and that was exemplified by none other than your son, Jesus Christ, as he came to this world or to honor you and glorify you, but also to save us. God, we thank you for his sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, We see here today the true cost of discipleship. It's very interesting, the backdrop of this passage. We see earlier in the chapter, what do we see there? We see the feeding of the 5,000. Where we know that Jesus Christ, there's a crowd that was gathered. Many were following him to hear of his teaching. And there's a great crowd that was gathered. And, And in this crowd, as this crowd was gathered in the midst of this moment, we see that to feed this crowd, because this crowd was hungry, Jesus worked an incredible miracle, one that we have grown up in church, heard many times, we often, again, lose the punch of this, of this miracle. He divided five loaves and two fish, 
and fed the entire 5,000. And by many accounts, depending upon how crowds were numbered in those days, they may have only been counting the men. And so it could have been a number well over 15,000 people that were gathered. And we see this incredible miracle. And so not only after this, after this setting, not only do we see because Jesus has been teaching incredibly powerful teachings, not only because he's gathered a crowd in general, and so that gathers even more crowd just because of spectators and curiosity, maybe some of them now, almost understandably, because of the poverty that some of them may have been living in, you could almost understand it, might have been following Jesus just to see if he would work another miracle to feed them. And so Jesus knew um, some of them were committed, many of them weren't. And so we see here in this passage earlier in chapter 9, as we lead into our focal passage today, we see this kind of spiritual high, this amazing miracle, followed by, with Jesus' inner circle, the 12, we see this clarifying question, this very pointed question that he asks his disciples. And we also see a real gut check as well, leading into the passage that we're speaking about today. So Jesus fed the 5,000, then as he was together privately with a smaller group of disciples, he said, who do the people say that I am? See, he was asking a clarifying question to them, basically because he wanted to get to the root of who do you really think you're following? So he says, who do the people think that I am? And he says, and they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, obviously very important figures, uh, but, some, but Jesus says to them, and who do, you, who do you say that I am? Who do you? Pointing the finger at them and saying, who do you say that I am? Very clarifying question. And Peter says, you are the Messiah of God. You're the Christ of God, that long-awaited Messiah. And so he asked them a clarifying question of which Peter answered correctly, that you are the one that's been long promised to our people. We know that you're powerful. We know that you have amazing teaching, but yet he could have been a prophet, and that would have been special to the people, undoubtedly, even if it was just a run-of-the-mill prophet. But he was more than that. He was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited Christ of God. And so he asked a clarifying question of which Peter answers for the group, and then we also he see that he follows that up with then telling them, giving a very sobering truth, a real gut check. And he says, I will soon die at the hands of the religious leaders. So he's coming off this incredible spiritual high of seeing 5,000 plus, maybe 15,000 people that are fed with this incredible miracle of five loaves, two fish. And coming off of that, Jesus says, Who do you really think that I am? Who do you really think that you're following? And then following that, he says, by the way, I'm going to soon die at the hands of the religious leaders. A real gut check. He was really, what he was doing is he was probing for sincerity. He was probing for the sincerity of their commitment. And that's really what we're going to see, the commitment, the sincerity of their commitment. You know, it's, it's really interesting today in kind of modern Christianity, especially the type that you might see uh, popularized on television, certain television networks, uh, certain religious leaders in which really the crowd is, can be and the crowd is desired to be as big as possible, even if that means it's at the expense of watering down the gospel, even if that means at the expense of really hitting the hard truths because they want the crowd to be. I can't, I'm p- presuming upon motives. But maybe the motive is to have as large of a crowd as possible, even if that means watering down the truth. Isn't it very interesting that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had more care, more of a broken heart than we'll ever have for the lost. And so you would think just in its purest form, he would want everyone to come, on, uh, come to know him. And he would uh, everyone commit to the gospel. Have everyone repent of sin and come unto him. But we see strategically at times that he would throw out these challenges, very real challenges, 
almost in an effort to say, I'm going to test your spiritual sincerity. And many times after he would say these things, undoubtedly, the crowds would thin. Because what he knew is, yes, as the Bible says, God desires that all come unto salvation, but not at the expense of a false gospel. Not at the expense of a false commitment. He wants us to know very clearly what the commitment is unto him. And so he follows this up with our focal passage that we see here. And again, he says in verse 23, and he said to them all, almost now speaking again to the larger crowd, if anyone would desire to come after me, let him take up himself, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, there's a couple of phrases there that are almost the setup of the meat, which I think are three things that, that speak to the nature of discipleship. And the first point that we're going to see here is deny. We must deny ourselves. We must deny ourselves. Within this verse, then, we're going to also see three things that, that, that speak specifically. They're not points on the, on the slides today, but three things that speak specifically to the nature of discipleship. But before we get there, there's two phrases, there's one word, there's one phrase, I don't think we can skip over because it really sets the stage. First of all, that word desire. If anyone would desire to come after him. We know that desire is good, that means that there is something there, that means you're clued in, that means that the heart is there, the heart is looking unto God and saying there's something here. In, in that immediate context, there's something there with Jesus Christ. He speaks a message, there's something there. But implicit in the statement, implicit in the rest of the passage, the fact that desire is not enough. If I can illustrate it with kind of, uh, kind of our common culture's thoughts on marriage. Many times people think, well, I've fallen out of love, and so therefore we fall out of marriage. Therefore the commitment's not there. But really love in a marriage, and really it's, it's kind of, that is illustrated by the love of God has unto us, and we reciprocate to God, is that love is about commitment. The feelings ebb and flow, but, the, but true love, and it's that kind of modeled by that agape love, that godlike love, means that we have a commitment to sacrifice, and feelings follow. And so almost implicit in this teaching is desire is good, but it's not enough. We must commit unto Jesus, and guess what? The desire remains, and it sustains. So he says, if anyone would desire, let him come after me. Again, it almost seems so simple that we'd pass right over it. Come after me. But it's a reminder that Jesus is not in the center of our life. But we are found in the very center of who Jesus is. A lot of times we can think that, that giving our life to Jesus is just kind of something we do to check off the list. And we kind of think of Jesus Christ as some sort of uh, genie in a bottle. Or maybe some sort of, uh, some sort of a, a fairy godfather that would kind of fly in and sprinkle some pixie dust when we have a terrible situation in life. Or a bad situation that we can't figure out. We've exhausted all of our personal resources. Okay, Jesus, can you come in and can you kind of work your magic? But we come after Jesus we follow after him, and so don't let us miss that. And he kind of wraps it up again with another statement similar to it. But he says, let him deny himself, A. B, let him take up his cross, and C, let him follow me. The very essence of discipleship. Discipleship, you could also say, is like a fellowship. It is following Christ. It is committed to Christ wherever he calls you, wherever he leads you, whatever he calls us to. And so in order to have that sort of true discipleship, the true cost of discipleship, we must first deny ourselves. We must first deny ourselves. Caring about number one is our most natural born instinct, isn't it? We don't have to teach a young child how to care about number one. 
We are all born with meitis, you know, caring about me, caring about me, 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 me. And oftentimes, some of us, even into our adult years, maybe we mask it well, maybe it never really even goes away. We have a meitis. It's the most natural born of our instincts. You see it even sometimes when people want to finally get out of the house, get out from their parents' umbrella. Finally, I can get out of the house so I can do what I want to do, right? We often hear that. Really, part of that, and even we see with adulthood, sometimes we have a boss that we don't want to follow. Sometimes it can be because of the quality of who we're following, but a lot of times it's even just our natural, human-born, rebellious instinct, right? We want to be completely free of any sort of fetters, of, of any sort of leadership, any sort of authority, and we just want to do what we want to do. But sometimes it's also because of the nature of who we're following. We know deep down that, yes, this person's been placed in authority over us, and guess what? The Bible says that we are to follow all authorities. We see that in Romans chapter 16 and other places. But sometimes we know deep down they're just like us. They're just another person like us. But when it comes to denying ourselves in the context of discipleship, we follow the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. We follow the one who is God the Son, came to earth, lived a perfect and holy life, and he is the one that absolutely, positively, never leads us astray. When we follow him, we are always led in the right direction. When we follow him, we always have the satisfaction of which the humans of this world so desperately long for. When we follow him, we must deny ourselves. So we deny ourselves and we must take up his cross. We must take up the cross. So it says, if you come after me, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross and follow me. You know, we think of the cross and there's just no way we can get around it. We think of the cross with the beauty of it, the very nature of the beauty of the cross. We know kind of uh, tangentially, we know kind of almost in some sort of a theoretical way that it was an instrument of gruesome death, but we see it on the context, we see it on this side of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We see the beauty of it. We see the fact that as Jesus hung on the cross, as he died that horrible gruesome death, that also heaped upon his shoulders was the sin of mankind so that we might, if we commit our life to him, we might be forgiven and cleansed. But we have to remember the context here. The disciples were seeing this. When he said, take up his cross, all they saw that was was an instrument of gruesome death. You think about it this way. I'm going to show you one picture here of a beautiful cross, right? This is what we think of as the cross. Now, sometimes we might wear simpler ones, but oftentimes we wear a gold cross. Uh, sometimes it's, it's very even ornate like this. Because we do, it reminds us of the beauty of what was accomplished there. It reminds us of, of, of Christ's sacrifice for our sin so that we, if we give our life to him, we are forgiven and cleansed. And so it's a symbol of, of, of love. It's a symbol of victory over sin and death. But for the disciples, for the immediate disciples, all they would have seen when he was spoke, all the only image that it would have been in their mind is, is a real sacrifice and a gruesome death. Imagine uh, if we were to wear a, a necklace like this. Let's see this next picture. Can you see what that is? That's an electric chair on a ring. That's an electric chair on a necklace. That's the image that the disciples would have seen of the cross. When he said, take up your cross, that's what they would have seen. An instrument of death. And so when Jesus was... was what was saying to them, take up your cross, he was speaking of a radical 
sacrifice, radical sacrifice. You can go back to the notes now. So we have to deny ourselves. Radical sacrifice. You know, for some of us, for some believers, even now as we speak here in, 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 this, in this country, in this setting, in this church, there's some of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around this world that are putting their own lives into their hands. And even we must be ready for that same sort of radical sacrifice if God calls us to it. But for here in our context, and no matter where the believer is found, often daily, it means that we are sacrificing our wants, our desires unto Christ. So he says, take up your cross daily. Now maybe we've been misled. Maybe, unfortunately, at different churches you've attended, maybe, unfortunately, here under my leadership, I have misled you. Even sometimes, even though I really try to, to, to speak as Christ would and say, count the cost of following Christ, but maybe we have been misled into thinking that, that really giving our lives to Christ is just kind of something that we do and we kind of check it off the list of life. You know, we go to school, then we graduate from, from high school, and we go off either into the workforce or we go off to college, Maybe we give our lives to Christ, then we get married, then we have children, we retire. Almost like something along the line of something we check off the list. But giving our lives to Christ is far more than that. It means that we must daily have radical sacrifice in our life. So a lot of times we just think it's a matter of checking that off our list and then what we get from it are life enhancements. You know, that when we can't solve an issue of life, that we kind of get these little life enhancements that come with following Christ and it makes our life just a little bit marginally better. Almost kind of like helps and, and hints for life. Almost like kind of a Christian ver version of Dale Carnegie or something. That we are kind of how to win friends and influence people. I kind of get the Christian version of that to kind of plug it into life. But Jesus says that if we're going to follow him, it is a matter of radical sacrifice. Radical sacrifice. He must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me present imperative in the original language which means along with the context of the actual phrase it's like this double emphasis which means we have to follow we have to follow him we have to do it in the way that it is prescribed sometimes we wonder why don't we have the abundant life that jesus christ promises jesus lying in john chapter 10 when he promises us that if we follow him we'll have the abundant life Jesus isn't lying. He's not lying at all. But so oftentimes when we think we're committed, we have a partial commitment. It's a checklist. It's a thing that we check off our list. And then we give partial commitment unto Jesus Christ. But when he says, follow me, he says that put all of your chips in the middle of the table. Push it all to the end. Give it all to me. Give me your entire life. You know, oftentimes when we are, have an illness, we get an antibiotic in our life. Or we get an antibiotic from the doctor. And when we take this antibiotic, we start to feel good after three days. And what do we do? We kind of lose the drive to keep taking it. The doctor says, take it for 10, no matter if you start feeling better. After three days, we start feeling a little bit better and we stop taking the antibiotic. Oftentimes, nothing happens. But many times, that illness can flare up again. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, he says that you must give all. Give all to him. It's a complete commitment to me. And so that daily... We have to sacrifice daily our life. Everything that kind of constitutes who we are is given to him. And we give control to Jesus. So here's the question. After deny ourselves, he says, if anyone desires, let him come after me. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and let him follow me. So the question is, why in the world would we want to do this? 
Why in the world would we want to give our lives to Jesus Christ? Some of you may be sitting here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. You're not a believer. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And you say, you know, maybe this is the first time that I've been in a church or I've been here for quite some time. And, and this message of Christ is clarified to me. Why in the world would I want to follow Christ? If he says that I have to deny all that I am, I have to give it all up, and then I might even have to die for Jesus Christ. Why? That didn't seem worth it at all. Why sign on for this? When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we receive abundantly more than we give up. We receive purpose, first of all. There's a great longing of the human heart to feel like we matter, to feel like we, we are not just kind of a collection of randomly attached molecules and just kind of by chance and happenstance, we happen to be here and I've got my little bit of time in human history and then poof, I'm gone. I don't really matter. I'm just kind of a number in the billions upon billions of people that have, that have lived on the face of the earth. God says that you were created in his image. We see that dated all the way back to, to Genesis. That we, if we are a human being, we are created in the image of God. And we are separated from God because of our sin when we miss the mark of what he's called us to. But yet he says because we are created in his image for his glory and his love for us, he is drawing us back to himself. He's been trying to redeem mankind. And we saw that that, come, that came to a climax in the person of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You are given purpose now that you have been made new, you've been made whole, and now you have the purpose of spreading the world's greatest message to the remainder of this unsaved world. We have purpose, we have forgiveness. We walk around with incredible guilt, wondering how in the world can I set the scales of life right? We can never set the scales of life right, but yet God forgives us through the person of Jesus Christ. We have direction in life, much related to purpose. We actually know what we're here for. We know what we're called to do. Yes, we may have a family. Yes, we may have a job. But we are ultimately called to and being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Taking this message, the greatest message the world has ever known. The message of God's love to take it to the world. We have direction what we're here for, what we're called to do. We have joy in this earth. Remember Jesus, I just mentioned it, said that he promises us that we have abundant life. The Bible is full of passages that speak about joy, the joy of life that we can have as we find it in God. And then when we die, we know we have a certainty of an eternity in heaven. An eternity in the unfiltered presence of Jesus Christ and joy forevermore. So yes, we give up something. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we are denying ourselves. We are taking up our cross. We are willing to have radical sacrifice in our life, even if it means a call unto death. But yet we get so much more. So much more. So first of all, we see that we must deny ourselves. Secondly, we must die to self. For whoever, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is essentially saying if you are trying to live your life holding on to that very life. And implicit in this means the world. If you're trying to hold on to those things of your life that are so attached to what the world has to offer. Fame, wealth, money, whatever it may be. Even in your little context. If we're trying to hold on to our life, we will lose it. But if we want to save our life, we must give it up. I want to show you another picture here on the screen. You see this picture? You ever seen one of these? You see what the firefighters are holding? It's one of those old school life nets. 
you remember they're like the big ring and it's got the, the, the fabric stretched between it. And so that someone jumps out of a burning building, they can kind of catch the person. I'm sure there were several injuries there along the way whenever these things were used, but you've got quite a bit of motivation behind you if a fire is creeping up from behind you. I'm sure you're willing to go. So you've got some motivation, but it's counterintuitive, isn't it? To just kind of walk out, kind of jump out. It, it goes against every bit of our self-preservation kind of bent that's within us. I've got to put my life in danger to save my life. It's the same thing here. When we think about our life and it's being used, it's everything that constitutes you and everything that's attached to the world. Jesus says that if we, if we try to hold on to that, if we're trying to live life and make something out of our life and find joy and satisfaction and hope in the things that this world has to offer, we'll lose it. But he who is willing to lose his life will save it. Verse 25 says this, as it kind of compounds this point. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? You know, even if the world, even if you had enough resources at your fingertips, even if you were wealthy enough to kind of give in to one pleasure of the world after another. See, that's what the world's like. The world's like a drug. The drug is a very good illustrative of of the world as a whole, the pleasures of the world. It's, it's something that gives you a pleasure, whatever it may be, uh, in the world that it has to offer. The world will give you this pleasure from this one particular thing or this particular thing, and then the edge of the pleasure wears off, and then you need more, and you need more, and you need more to receive the same sort of pleasure. And then the world just pulls you down. You see, even if you had enough resources to kind of keep that going, just one pleasure after another, after another, after another, your life, as the Bible says, is still a vapor. In context of the entirety of eternity, in the context of eternity, your life is but a vapor. So we ask ourselves, why can't God just kind of let it go, right? Why can't just God just let it go? Just let me live my life the way I want to. Yes, I know I'm missing the mark. Yes, I'm kind of violating uh, his boundaries for life and his glory. I'm violating those, and that's what God calls sin when we miss the mark of what he's called us to. Why can't God just let it go? I think there's an absolute, complete misunderstanding of God, his nature, and sin. We forget that God is a holy God. Holy God. He has never been stained or tainted at all by sin, and he is holy. He is un, uh, completely un, uh, otherworldly. He is not known unto us. Except he makes himself known, but yet he loves and he cares for us. And we don't, we don't understand sin in the same context, but God is holy and he is loving. He is just, and that justice is only matched by his love. You see, if sin wasn't a big deal, why in the world would the Son of God come from heaven, leave the very glory of heaven, and come into this earth, wrap himself in flesh, die for us, to cleanse us of our sin? We must die unto self. We must deny ourselves again. We must deny ourselves. We must come after him. We must take up his cross. We must follow him. We must follow Jesus and we must die to self. We think about commitment. We think about commitment unto Christ. The very essence are those two things. As we think about following Jesus Christ, as we think about following him, as we think about being his disciple, we must deny ourselves. We must die to self. We must take up our cross. And we must live.
you know, if you're here today, for the believer, if you're here today as a believer, it's a constant reminder unto us that in the same way, in the same commitment that we made to Jesus Christ, as we are willing to take up his cross and follow him daily, we must trust him with the remainder of our life to do it each and every day. Trusting him that his way is best in our life. And for those of you who are here today that don't know Christ as your savior, yes, it's a great call unto commitment. But what you receive for it is what your heart is absolutely longing for. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that um, you've called us out of our sin and you have given us a new identity. That we have been cleansed, we've been forgiven, and we have been adopted into your family. Lord God, I also pray for those that are here today that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that this would be the day that they commit their life unto him. And just as he, throughout his ministry, was very clear about what the commitment meant, he'd say, count the cost, count the cost. But yet he knew, he knew, Lord, the wonder of the offer. Because he knew what what he was giving to others was far greater than what they were giving up. And so, God, I pray that those that are here today, Those that are here today that don't know Christ as their Savior, may they be willing to make that commitment to Him today. For those that are here that do know Christ as their Savior, Lord God, I also pray that we again would daily take up that cross, that commitment unto you, trusting you with every bit of our life. Lord, that you again might sustain us, might bring again to us that joy of our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We come now to this time of invitation.